The following sermon is a ministry of Hilton Head Presbyterian Church. For more information, visit us online at hiltonheadpca.com. Our passages this morning come from Matthew chapter 5. We're looking now at this, continuing to look at the Sermon on the Mount, where Jesus is teaching about the kingdom of heaven. And he is picking up on uh, this deep and this radical righteousness that is to be within the follower of Christ. That those who are part of the kingdom, how we, how we live. And he was teaching on the law and giving examples of the law. And so we're going to look at verse 17 through 20 and then picking up at his example on giving of oaths, of vows that we take. So if you have the word of the Lord turned now to Matthew chapter 5, verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, unless, uh, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments, teaches others to do the same, will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them, will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Again, you have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform the Lord what you have sworn. But I say to you, do not take an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is the throne of God, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, Or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. Do not take an oath by your head, for you cannot make one hair white or black. Let what you say be simply yes or no. Anything more than this comes from evil. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and to the hearing of it. Amen. The Sermon on the Mount is a sermon about being in the kingdom of God. It's a sermon about life in that kingdom. When Jesus was talking to Nicodemus, uh, the leader within the Jerusalem church, in uh, the Jewish church, in John chapter 3, he asked, how is it that I can enter the kingdom? And he said, be born again to, to become a believer. You are born again through Christ, that we accept him, and that with that, immediately we become a member, a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. That the kingdom of God is a realm, or, or put another way, it's a condition in, in which Jesus holds sway. I want you to hear that, that if you're here this morning and you're thinking uh, about Christianity or maybe reinvestigating it in your life, or maybe you've been here for a long time and you need to hear this as well, that the kingdom of God is where Jesus holds sway. It's where his royal power holds sway over us. It's where he rules and reigns. And and what we have at that point when we come into the kingdom is his power in us. It's his power over us because being born again, receiving Christ into our lives, what we're doing is we are renouncing mastery of everything else that has held sway over us. We're renouncing the mastery of self, that we no longer live a self-determined life. We don't get to set our own rules. We don't set our own standards. We don't set all of our own agendas. That we have a different king, a different sovereign. 
we renounce the mastery of sin in our lives, that we are no longer under its power and domain. We're affected by it, but our allegiance has shifted and the power has shifted within our lives. That we're renouncing self and that we are moving towards obeying Christ. That's what he's teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Being a Christian isn't about being more moral. It's not trying to do more good things and trying to do less things. Yes, as a Christian, we look and see that our lives are affected. But what it really is coming down at the end of the day, it's us saying, I renounce all of those other things over me. I renounce even my own self-determined will in these things. You see, what happens when we enter into the kingdom of heaven, it's an awesome reality. The very power of Christ himself, the king, it floods into your life. Christ himself, his reign, it floods over you. It floods into you. It is this incredible picture of the supernatural character and power of Christ. His wisdom, his strength, his life, his power, his his, all of his grace, his royalty, all of his majesty, all of it pouring and flooding into your life. That you're filled with Christ. That's what being a part of the kingdom is all about. It's all wrapped up. It's put and it's given to us in this descending incredible power that begins to transform us into his likeness little by little. That we're radically changed when we enter in to the kingdom of heaven. That's what Jesus has been talking about. That's what he's teaching about uh, in the Sermon on the Mount. Take a pause for a second right there. What I was describing to you about the kingdom of God, uh, of recognizing when you enter into the kingdom of God through Christ, through that profession of faith, by grace uh, we have been saved through faith, that it's a gift of God, and you see that flooding power of Christ entering into you, that you are transformed. Does it affect your heart at all? Does it affect you at all? How it affects you tells you something about the spiritual condition of your life. Because you see, when you come in contact with the King, when you recognize your closeness to Him, when you recognize what is taking place, something happens within us. Think about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. When she was bearing uh, John, he was still in the womb, and she got near to Mary, who was pregnant with Jesus Christ. What happened? John the Baptist recognized, he goes, I'm near the king. It says that he leapt within her womb, that being in the very presence of this king affected him. And for some of you, you could use a little affecting. I can't see all of you, but the ones I can see, it's like, yeah, yeah, okay. Maybe it's the turkey hangover. I don't know what's going on. But there's this sense of recognizing, does the gospel inspire you? Does it excite you? Does it move you at all to hear this? That you are the most to be congratulated in all of the world. Because the King of Kings, the God of Gods, His transforming power flooded into your life. That you're not the same. You can't be the same That's what Jesus is preaching here. He's saying you are salt and light. You are different. Your life cannot be lived in private. It was never designed to be that. But yet we want to try to keep it as private as possible. We want enough of Jesus and enough of the gospel so that we get into heaven. We don't go to hell. 
But we don't really want a lot of people to know that. We don't want it to fully affect us. And what Jesus is talking about in the Sermon on the Mount is a radical effect that happens when His gospel, when His power, when His kingdom floods into your life. Guess what? Those of you who are married, those of you who are single thinking about being married, something transpires when you get married. You cannot act the same way you did the day before. For some of you, that is new news. But you cannot. It's not allowed. You are different. You just got married. Everything is different. Those of you who have children and those of you who are thinking about having children need to hear this. When you have a child, everything's different, isn't it? Your world is radically different. Coming into a relationship with Christ is the same way. If we would say, of course, Bill, it's nonsensical to think that if I get married, I could live the same life I lived beforehand. I would never think that. And if I have a child, I, I would, of course, acknowledge that my life would be different. If we acknowledge it on a human level, how much more should we acknowledge it on a spiritual level? That in coming into relationship with Jesus Christ touches every part of your life. It changes you from the inside out, not from the outside in. Don't get more moral in order for Jesus to love you. Don't get more religious in order for Jesus to love you. It is a transformation of the heart which then pours out through our lives and affects every area of our lives. Jonathan Edwards, the great uh, pastor, when he was preaching in the revivals of the Great Awakening in the U.S., he came back and was, check and was checking on people who had made professions of faith later. Because he said this, hey, it's great that 98 people, 110 people, 300 people, 5,000 people, 7,000 people, it's great that they all walked the aisle, it's great that they made this, but I want to see because a transformed life is a life that you can actually notice somewhere else down the road. And what he found, interestingly enough, he went to some, and this was an agrarian culture, remember? Uh, and he went and he found some men who were so affected by the gospel that when they went back after that time, they went to their farms and they repented to their farm animals. They went to their horses and they went to their mules and they went to their oxen and they repented. Why? Because they realized this transformation, this kingdom power that has come into my life, it so convicts me that I can't treat you the way that I used to treat you. I'm not the same master anymore. I give that over. It's saying, I'm not asking you to go home and repent to your dog if you kicked your dog this morning. I am saying this, it should affect how you treat your animals. I remember, well, I can't go on that tangent, but, I've, but the fact of the matter is it says righteousness affects us even down to the way that we treat our children, our animals, everybody in our lives. So you see now, it's not possible to live this Christian life in private. And this teaching that Jesus gives us, this radical nature of his teaching, we talked last week and he said, listen, I'm not trying to get rid of the law at all. I fulfilled the law, but recognize what I'm actually doing is I am raising the bar. I am raising the bar for you to see that there is supposed to be a, a radical nature of the righteousness that is within the Christian, the follower of Jesus Christ, that surpasses that of any religious person. Any religious person who would dumb down the law in order to obtain it, what he's saying is, I've raised it so high that you can never attain it, and then you have to see that I've fulfilled it on your behalf, and what you then say is, God, I want to live in every area and sphere of my life to the glory of your name and not my own. 
And so what we're going to look at this morning is we're going to look at two very simple things. We're going to look at a problem and then we're going to look at a solution. We're going to look at a problem and we're going to look at a solution. Uh, The problem was the improper teaching of the day, both in the day of Jesus and in our day. And the solution is Jesus' proper teaching. It is his insightful, proper teaching on these truths. And so when we come, let me first say by way of disclaimer, Jesus is not saying within this that there is never a point that you make a public vow, that you make a public. Quakers took this and they ran to the extreme of saying, I will never take a public vow. When we make our wedding vows, we make vows in that way publicly. Paul regularly in the New Testament said, by God's name, I tell you, he invoked God's holy name uh, within this. Jesus is not saying that you can never make a public promise. What he's saying is actually much more frightening than that. Never making a public promise is easy. Christ is calling us to a radical truthfulness, a radical honesty that reflects him in every area and sphere of our lives. So here's the problem. The first is the problem that Jesus faced. He said, you've heard that it was taught uh, these things, that you shall not swear falsely, but shall perform to the Lord what you have sworn. Uh, Jesus was simply and aggressively correcting bad teaching of the day. Because the Bible clearly taught that vows and oaths were good things. Here's several verses. Leviticus 19.12. You shall not swear by my name, this is God speaking, uh, falsely, and so profane the name of your God, I am the Lord. Numbers 30, verse 2, if a man vows a vow to the Lord or swears an oath to him him, to bind himself by a pledge, he shall not break his word. He shall do according to all that proceeds out of his mouth. Deuteronomy 23, 21, if you make a vow to the Lord your God, you shall not delay fulfilling it, for the Lord your God will surely require of you and you, and you will be guilty of sin. But if you refrain from vowing, you will not be guilty of sin. You shall be careful to do what has passed your lips, for you have voluntarily vowed to the Lord your God what you have promised with your mouth. Vows were assumed and they were actually even encouraged within the Old Testament. And what Jesus is saying is saying there's been a misunderstanding. There's actually been a wrong teaching uh, about vows. He's saying this is more serious than you understand. Because in his day, there was a rabbinic teaching, not every rabbi, but the rabbis of the day had devalued truth so much that they had created entire section within the Mishnah, which is the writing down of the oral traditions of the Jewish faith. And this entire chapter was basically designed to make vows convenient, to explain what vows that you could make that were binding and what vows you could make that weren't binding. What promises were binding promises and what promises were non-binding promises? And so what they had done was they basically read the Ten Commandments and they read in the Scriptures and they said, oh, if we don't swear by God's name, if we just don't invoke the name of God, therefore every other promise that we make isn't binding. And they began to mess with this and to... Uh, figure this out over time, and only as human beings can do, they created a very complex and very confusing system that went something like this. If you swear by Jerusalem, that's not a binding vow. But if you swore towards Jerusalem, that's a binding vow. 
Or if you swore by the altar, that's not a binding vow. You could break that vow and there'd be no, penal, uh, uh, there'd be no penalty uh, for you uh, in that breaking of the vow. But if you swore by the sacrifice on the altar, then that was a binding vow. You get it? Isn't that perfectly clear? It goes a little bit like our culture. Well, I promise to do that. And you cross your fingers. Remember that as children? What have we taught our children? Oh, well, if I swear, but I cross my fingers, then it's not really a promise that I made. I can break it, and there's no problem. Jesus was coming, and he was saying, folks, you've totally missed it. You have totally missed this entire system. All of this has led in his day. It led to the inevitable trivialization of everyday language and of integrity. Nobody knew what to believe. Can you imagine being in that system? I promise that I'll do this by Jerusalem. Did he say by Jerusalem or towards Jerusalem? Is that binding or not binding? And the rabbis of the day, the religious leaders of the day, were the ones teaching this. Well, they weren't the only ones who did it. We live in a day and age where truth is not valued in our culture. Would you agree with that? We don't have any idea what truth is all about. Because we use language like this. Well, I'll speak to you off the record. What does that little off the record statement mean? I'll be honest with you off the record. On the record? What are we supposed to believe? Is that truth? Is that not truth? Can you believe anything that comes out of positions of power within our culture and in our day? Not at all. That we look and we go, I don't care if it's a Democrat or Republican in the White House, lies are coming out. You're never going to get the full truth. You're never going to get the full truth from Congress. You're never going to get exactly what happened. Things are sealed. Things are kept back. And what is given to us out of Washington, out of Columbia, out of wherever, we look at and we recognize that we expect to be bamboozled. We expect not to be told the truth. We're conditioned for it. That's the world in which we live. That we're told, I can't do that, but yet someone comes and does that for you. You see, we live a life that, how many of you have said this? I swear, in a, just a general conversation. Why? You've been conditioned to say, no, no, what I'm really telling you now is the truth. Now, what I told you previous to the swear, eh, maybe, maybe not. That's up to you to decide. I remember my mom would get on me and I would say, hey, mom, I'm going to tell you the truth. Well, Billy, wouldn't you always tell me the truth? No. But what I'm about to tell you maybe is the truth, but probably not fully the truth in that we've created this. We'd get the cross fingers. We do a little pinky swear. Pinky promise? Like somehow... These two pinkies locking are going to bring down the power of the universe to keep us to do those things. What does it mean? We've lost all of this problem. We've lost all truth in our culture. But underlying both the bad teaching of the Jewish day, the bad cultural norms of our day, is the deeper problem. And the deeper problem is this. We are natural born liars. We were born into it. Adam and Eve, when they fell... Part of the very first effect of the fall was a lack of honesty and integrity. God said, where are you? And they were hiding from him. They were hiding the truth. 
When he asked Adam, what happened, Adam? What went on? Instead of Adam saying, I blew it, I ate the fruit that you told us not to eat. What did Adam say? He shifted the the truth a little bit. Well, it was this woman that you gave me, and she made me eat. Ultimately, God, it's not my fault. I'm not denying or accepting this. I'm just simply saying that, yes, I ate, but I have some reasons why I ate. And you see it in the bloodlines, Cain and Abel in the next chapter, the next story. Cain was upset with Abel, his brother, and he murdered his brother. And God came to Cain, said, Cain, where's your brother? What did Cain say? He's buried over there. No, he said, I don't know where my brother is. I'm not my brother's keeper. Why should I know where my brother is? Hiding and lying. And then we learn in Jeremiah, the heart, the problem that we have is inside of us is a deceitful heart that is wicked above all things. Its natural tendency is to lie. Its natural tendency is to hide. Can any of you agree with that at all? Does that resonate with you at all? We we go there first almost. We lie first. And parents, you go, man, my kid's a liar. Well, they get it naturally. Right from y'all. And from our parents, Adam and Eve ultimately filtered down through us. That we realize that we've got this heart within us and we have an enemy, the evil one, who is described as the father of lies. He feeds and perpetuates this within our lives. And what we find is this tension in our lives of trying to live out this principle of truth and love. Of Can we speak truth and yet be loving? And the problem comes down at every level, that when you look at something, truth without love really isn't truth, it's coldness. It's just impervious, as one writer put it, it's impervious self-righteousness. It's narrow-minded, it's rigid. Truth without love is really not truth at all. But love without truth isn't love at all. That to answer the question, of when someone, men, you'll relate to this. Does this outfit make me look fat? How many of you have heard that question? You're, you're terrified even to raise your hand. <laughs> does this make me look great? How does it look? And we go, <laughs> because we're saying, I, I can't tell the truth. I can't tell the truth. Sweatpants and sweats just kind of make you look like you gave up. But I'm not going to say that to you today. So I'm going to love you, but no, you're not really loving because you didn't tell the truth. You're actually loving yourself only in that because you're afraid. that. So we've lived. Do you understand the problem, right? It's a difficult problem that we have. So what's the solution in the few moments that we have? What's the solution? Here's Jesus' solution. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. Have a good day, Right? Just speak the truth. I remember a test that I gave to some elders at another church, and I came to them, and I said, hey, I've really been wrestling with lying. I haven't been telling the truth fully. I've been shaving the truth a little bit on the side, a little white lie here, a little exaggeration there. I look out, and I see that there's probably 500 people here this morning. Now, there's only 400 chairs, but there's 500 people. That's pastor speak. We like to embellish a little bit our stories. That we uh, like to see that that putt that was actually a six-foot putt 
man, it was like 45 feet over an undulating green and a raccoon ran across right in the middle of it. But man, I sunk that thing. That fish that we caught was really this big. But it was this big and I fought it for 45 minutes. It was awesome. And that we have this profound problem within our lives. And I came to the elders of the church and I said, I've got a problem with lying. You know what the response was? Bill, you need to quit lying. I was like, you're kidding, right? And they're like, well, no, the Ten Commandments say don't lie. And you're the pastor of this church and you really shouldn't lie. You above anybody else shouldn't lie. And I was like, well, thank you. I appreciate that. That wasn't at this church. It was at another church. And I said, guys, do you recognize that you totally missed it? Breaking the law isn't fixed by adding more law on top of it. Breaking the law and saying, I have a problem with lying and hiding and integrity and honesty isn't fixed by saying the law says don't lie. We already know that intrinsically. So what we have to do, Jesus comes and he says, here's the solution. The solution is this, go deeper. The solution is recognize that the problem is larger than you think it is. Recognize that there is something more sinister at work here. And that what you need to see is that you have to go beyond what the Pharisees were doing. The Pharisees and the rabbis of the day were making honesty something that you could do. Well, I didn't swear by the altar. Uh, I only swore by this. I didn't swear by my hair. Jesus is saying, listen, here's the deal. Your word is sacramental. The word of a follower of Jesus Christ carries with it weightiness. And it doesn't matter if you swear by your hair on your head or by the cosmos or by the temple or by the church or put your hand on the Bible. He's saying, don't you recognize that God has made all things and your word as a follower carries the weight of the glory of heaven in your word. He makes the problem almost worse as part of the solution. Because he's saying, listen, I'm going to raise the bar on you. What you say matters, followers of Jesus Christ. The words that come out of your mouth, they are are filled with eternity and the weight of glory in eternity. How you act, how you conduct your business, how you do all of that matters. And so what this should do is some of you are going, oh my gosh, I don't think I can speak at all. I might not be able to say anything. Because we, it's just such a part of us. Have you ever been in a conversation where someone goes, well, you know Susie, right? You have no clue who they're talking about. Oh, yeah, 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 I know. You have anybody ever done that or is it just me? I do that all the time. I mean, you, you know Bob Smith, right? I know Bob. I mean, well, Bill, you, you've been fly fishing before, right? Yes, I have. I own a fly fishing rod. Didn't ask for it. It was a birthday present. Now I have it. I feel obligated. And so, oh, yeah, sure. I, I fly fish. What? Well, Bill, just quit lying. Just say, I don't know Susie and Bob. I don't fly fish. And I'm really bad at these things. No, Jesus is saying, you need to understand that the problem is deeper than that. That's the lying, that's a surface sin. That's just something that's presenting itself on the surface. What we need to see is this call to profound honesty and radical truthfulness pushes us down to ask the question beyond the question. It's asking you to say this, why did I lie? What is underneath that has led me to lie? And here's what it is. I value your opinion too much. 
I want you to think I'm credible. I want to be part of the conversation. I want you to think that I'm awesome. I, I need your validation more than I need God's. And I've really forgotten God's validation when I say to you, yeah, I know that. Yeah, yeah, I, I've, I've done that. Yeah, or I lie, Bill, why didn't you get this to me? Well, because I just forgot was the actual reason, but I can't say that. And it's like, well, it, it's because I had this happen and this happen and we did, because I need you to like me. And so what we've got to do when we begin to see this lying happening in our lives, that, we, that we're shaving the truth, that we're not radical in our honesty, we've got to go underneath and find the sin that lies under the sin. And folks, that's not easy. That's where we need to pray uh, prayers like Psalm 139. Lord, search me and know me. Try me. See what's going on inside of me. God, I can't even understand it fully. Why, when Lisa asked how much something cost and it was $29.99, you know what I say? It's 20 bucks. I mean, it had a two in front of it. I mean, it's in the 20 range, and I feel okay. Why? Because I know that maybe I shouldn't have bought that, or maybe, uh, I, so I hedge and down. And so I have to ask the question, why did I just lie? What, what led me to that? Well, it's just who I am. That's just the kind of guy I am. I'm just that guy. No, it's go underneath. Go down underneath. How about this? Have any of you ever uh, been criticized by somebody else? Yeah, a few of you. Those of you who haven't are the ones who are doing the work uh, there. How do you deal with criticism? This is a great picture. When you wrestle with honesty and criticism and somebody criticizes you, are you willing to own it? Are you willing to go, you're right? Or we're okay at a broad level. Yep, I'm a sinner, I'm messed up, I'm bad. But are you willing to own it at a deeper level? Are you, when your beloved points something out to you, are you able to go even further and say, sweetheart, I appreciate you pointing that out to me. Is there anything else that I've done that has caused you pain? Is there anything else that I've done that is affecting our relationship? You guys are going, man, you're moving into meddling now, preacher. You've just screwed up my afternoon. Because now my wife's going to go, babe, more stuff under there. Don't you want to talk what the preacher said to talk about? No, no, I'm out. But how do we deal with that? Can we own that we blew it? Honesty goes to such a deep and a profound level. What we have to see, and here's the solution. See the problem for what it is, and it's bigger. Part of the solution, and the solution is this, it's a battle that you can't win on your own. You need that kingdom power flourishing in your life and flowing into your life. You need the Holy Spirit to come in and to remind you of this. Bill, God absolutely adores you. You are set, you are safe. His validation is set about you. Therefore, you can fail in your personal relationships. You should try to succeed, but you can fail. And when you fail, you can be honest. Because guess what? God's opinion of you never changes. God's value for you never changes. I need to be reminded of that. And then I need to ask the third person of the Trinity to come in and go, help me at this moment. Everything in me wants to lie. Everything in me wants to hide. Everything in me wants to blame shift. Everything in me wants to add a but or a however to my apology. And you know how that works, right? 
Well, I'm sorry I did that, but everything after negates everything before, by the way. Just to be able to say, God, give me the strength to own what I need to own. Even if it comes from an enemy who is wrong in their criticism, there is probably some truth within it that I can learn from. It takes us down to a level. It gives us a power to be honest in our lives that will shake the world because the world desperately needs the church of Jesus Christ filled with people who've been flooded by his kingdom power and his kingdom presence to live perfectly, wonderfully honest lives. And when we mess up, because none of us can be perfectly, wonderfully honest, when we mess up, own it. I've told you this story before when I lived in the mountains of North Carolina and was looking for a contractor to work on our house. One of the old crotchety men in the coffee shop who wasn't a follower of Jesus Christ said he didn't know I was a preacher. He said this, he goes, I can tell you a bunch of people to use, but don't use any of those people who put that little fish on their business cards. How sad that the lack of integrity and of honesty within the business dealings of the church of Jesus Christ gave cause for a non-believer not to believe in Christ. The church needs us to be radically different. Don't look for the loopholes. Don't look for the ways, but to go out. And then when you mess up, and you will mess up, you have forgiveness in Christ. Isn't that awesome to know? That you're forgiven in Him. That this Christ who loves you, who is flooding you with his kingdom power and presence has already forgiven you. And you can be honest with him and then you can be honest with yourself. So folks, here's our homework for this week. Pray Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. Lord, search me. Lord, look in there and see if there's anything there. And if there is, I want to repent of it. I want to own it. I want to be kind to myself. And then I want to step out and I want to live with integrity in this life, in this world. Let's pray.